The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Ah, thank you for the water. Uh, Well, you guys have come on a very, very special week. Did you know that? Yes, 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 you did. You know why? Because today is August 1st. You guys, you guys know what August 1st is, right? It's Jesse's birthday. We didn't thank God for that. We're not really that thankful for that. It is Jesse Pierre's birthday. He's 35. Doesn't look a day over. 29 or so, though. Uh, no, he's 29. We're thankful for that. No, no. August 1st, today, right here, right now, is the first time I have spoken to you guys in over a year. Like, this is the kind of thing, you mark your calendar for this stuff. You know? I mean, the, the, last, time, the last time I had a chance to talk to you guys, we talked about, uh, it was at Christmas Eve. How many people were at, so it was, okay, eight months ago. How many people were here at, for the 11 o'clock service, the, the midnight mass, uh, this past Christmas? Ah, uh, Two people. Three people. So you guys remember how we completely dis- deconstructed the arrival of Christ? We talked about how, yeah, it, it may have actually been a rather disappointing thing. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, and then the time before that, we were all naked. No, the, the series was called Naked Pastors. If, and that's, that, that is it. That is the sum total of my speaking here. So this is a very special occasion. Um, but seriously, we've been, we've been working through a series on the parables, uh, which par- parables are essentially stories intended to teach, teach a lesson, often in comparison, you know, uh, where Jesus will say something like, the kingdom of God is like a, or um, God or heaven is like this. And tell a story. Um, We're going to continue that today by looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. So if you want to, underneath your seats, you'll find red Bibles. um, And it looks like it's page 850 for those of you who are not interested in doing a sword drill. Um, I'm not either, I just printed it out. so we're going we're gonna to look at, functionally, the power, the power that a, a good story has. Um, this is something that, that Jesus used as a vehicle for his teaching frequently. Um, to tell a story that captivates the audience in such a way that it leaves them thinking about it. They, they always remember it. It's kind of like my dad. Uh, for those of you who know my dad, my, my dad is kind of like the the elder sage rabbi in the movie, The Serious Man. Like, he's the guy behind the closed doors, and whatever he says is just pithy and cosmically significant. Um, he used to tell me these things growing up, and I, used, I hated them because he'd just repeat them. 
And if he didn't repeat them, I'd probably have forgotten them. But he used to tell me that absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Okay, that's wonderful. And if he hadn't said it like a hundred million times, I probably would not remember it. But if he had told me a story, say the story of a short, um, unassuming guy from a small town who uh, never, everybody was very friendly, never really left town, nothing really exciting ever happened until by chance or by fate, a ring made its way, made its way to the town. Now, everyone in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because we're all geeky. We read the books long before we saw the movies. And we all know the story of Frodo in the ring. And we know, ah, there's one amongst us. Either way, most of us know. We know the story of how power corrupted a very unassuming person. And because we know that story and it's stuck with us, we can glean so much more than just power corrupts. We can watch how it happens. We can watch how it sneaks up on you. We can watch how it, takes, how it tears apart your friendships and produces greed and all this stuff. We can learn so much just because it's a story. It's not a little pithy statement. And while it may be easy for the Bible to just be a series of very pithy statements... I think we benefit by the fact that Jesus decided to use story and that much of scripture is the story of people interacting with God. So let's look at at Luke 15. Um, Luke makes a point of setting the stage first before recounting any of the stories. We see in in verse 1, Luke says, Now the tax collectors, we learned about a couple weeks ago, not... Not the most favorite people in the world, um, as they are now. We love them. Um, But now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, to hear him. But the Pharisees, the religious folk, and the teachers of the law stood in, I'm going to paraphrase, stood in the back of the room and muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's in this context that it says, then Jesus told them this parable. This is our context. In order to really understand the kinds of things that Jesus is trying to tell us, we need to know what the situation was that Jesus is speaking into. Because it's not our situation, necessarily. But it may inform our situation directly. As As we walk through this passage, I want us to to not just look at the the story, but I, I want us to pick a character, pick a group of people to identify with. Um, it's not exactly an Ignatian reading. It's a little Ignatian. It's quasi-Ignatian, for those of you who are familiar with the Ignatian reading. We're going to use our imagination. We're going to use our five senses. We're going to find something and latch on to it but we're not going to do this strict process. I would suggest that today we should latch on to that group of people, the um, the tax collectors and the sinners. 
They're the audience that Jesus is speaking to, correct? We just, we just read that. He's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners who gathered in front of him. So as we read through this story, let's listen to it and let our imagination expand upon it a little bit from the perspective of his audience, the tax collectors and the sinners. Fair enough? Okay. Well, let's dive in. Um, before, before we get to the parable that's known commonly as the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells two other parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Um, we're not going to touch either one of them today. Um, but they may come in tangentially, if you're familiar with the story. Um, so he tells those two, and then in verse 11 it says, Jesus continues. So he's continuing to tell a story that he's already started with those two parables. But this is kind of the, the ultimate expression of that story. Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my fair share of the estate or of your property. So the father divided the property amongst them. Let's, let's stop right there. We'll stop right there. What do, we, what do we know thus far? We know that there are three characters involved. We've got the father, the older son, and the younger son. And we know that the father has property. He holds some sort of property or an estate. Now, as a first century uh, listener, I know that, or we know, that to hold property means you have some sort of status. You're something. You're not, you're not uh, a commoner. You have an estate. So this is obviously a rich, or at least upper middle class. <laughs> this is the cobblestone creek kind of landowner. You're like, he's, he's got a little bit of cash. Um, and he has two sons. Traditionally, in a Jewish culture, um, inheritance is not something that is even spoken about until the patriarch of the family is in the grave, cold and dead. We don't talk about these things. If, if, has anybody here done estate planning with elderly parents or with grandparents? Awkward situation, isn't it? And that's now when we value young, we value youth, we value vitality and the American dream. This is, a situa- this is a society where the older you get, the more value you have. So to talk to someone who is elder of you about their estate, especially if they're leaving it to you, is unheard of. So again, put yourself in the, in the, the shoes, the seat of the listener. Jesus is setting a stage for us where he's going to teach from. The younger son comes to his father and he says, Father, give me my fair share of the estate. As the listener, we know that in a Jewish culture, the fair share of the estate goes entirely to the older son, not to the younger son. It only goes to the younger son if the father decides to give something to the younger son. But it is tradition 
that the older son gets everything. If, if not everything, at least two-thirds, I think, is something. It's an Old Testament uh, Levitical law, the way that that's laid out. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's in Deuteronomy. But we'll just pretend it's Levitical. Uh, for, the, for the sake of argument, because we don't want to get hung up on it. But either way, the majority of it goes to the older son. The younger son gets what people are willing to give, what the dad's willing to give. So for the son to come up and say, give me my share of the estate, the younger son, this is a very bold statement. This is a very in-your-face statement. And to say it to the father while the father is still breathing is functionally saying, I'm not willing to wait for you to die. Give me my fair share now. This is a very, very, very bold statement that this younger son is making. And as a first century audience, we're listening to this, and I could imagine some people in the room are going, wow, this Paris Hilton type. It's like, you know, dang, man. It's all these aristocrats, you know. So Jesus is setting the stage. And the father in this story apparently loves his son enough to be able to go with it. Because it says right after that, he, he divided his property. The father could have taken this very poorly, but he decides not to. So functionally, the father is willing to sell off a portion or all of his land, his possessions, his, his hired help, his, the servants that work in the house. That's his estate. And he's willing to liquidate a portion of that to give to the son, who's just basically walked up to him and said, Dad, go die so that I can have some of your cash. He divides that up and graciously gives that to his son. And in that culture, your status, your, your, uh, your status in your town, your, your level of influence is entirely based upon your estate. So he's even willing to lower himself a little bit, to kind of cut himself down slightly in order to give to the son who again in our ears, has just said, go die so that I can have your stuff. This is, our, this is the beginning of our story. So let's again, let's, let's put ourselves in the room as we're listening to Jesus tell us this story. Then it, Jesus says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, all this newfound wealth that he has just acquired from his dad's estate. And the younger son set off to a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. So again, let's put ourselves in the room. Younger son, dad, go die. I want your stuff. The son gathers the stuff together. You got to imagine this took a little time. This is not not the kind of thing where it's, you know, dad goes over to the bank, just liquidates this trust fund, hands you a check. No, you know, this is livestock, this is people, this is land and houses. Got to take care of that. It's going to take a little time. 
the sun gathers it all together. And again, it's not a check. This is a visible thing. There's probably mules with stuff laid over the top of them, a caravan of people that the sun is leaving town with. This is not something that goes unnoticed. You can't sneak out of town with 35 servants, 10 mules, and, you know, five camels with half your house on it. You're not sneaking out. So this is a big deal and could very well have not only been a lowering of status because of the lack of land, but also because of the embarrassment of watching the son leave with the family wealth. Um, the younger son goes off to a distant country and becomes the big man on campus. He's the guy, he's the guy, if you, you know, hey, round, round on this guy. You know, uh, this guy is going to spot my cab ride home. You know, he's big, he's big with the, the ladies. He's dropping lots, lots of uh, five and ten shekels, you know, at the, at the bar, buying rounds for everybody. He, he's, going, he's going to town buying friends, buying this lifestyle. Um, and eventually, as those things usually go, this goes horribly bad. The money runs out. The friends are going to go away. If, if, if I have to pay to have you laugh with me at a bar, when that money goes away, you're going away too. So he goes in all high on the horse. And by the, by the end of this section of our story, is, has, has blown all the cash that he just took from his dad. Now again, let's put ourselves in the room. We're hearing this. We are tax collectors. We are sinners. We are unclean. We are the dregs of the society. Our reaction very well might be good. See? See? This is what happens. This is what happens. Some of us may be that person. Where we, where we have gone from, some, from being something to now being nothing, to being the dregs of society. And we may be, this may be the first time where this story starts to hit a little bit. Oh, geez, I'm that guy. I'm that lady. That's kind of weird. So he squanders, he squanders his wealth, his, his wealth, uh, on, in this faraway country. Let's, let's see what happens next. After he'd spent everything, after he had spent everything he took, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So, the younger son has wished his father dead, taken half the, half the estate, gone off, blown it on fast chariots and fast women, and, and now he's left with nothing, and in comes a famine. Now, a famine, we, we've never experienced a famine. At least, I don't think. Has anybody in the room experienced famine? Yeah, I, I didn't think so. 
Um, this, this, is, this is not just, this isn't like a recession. This isn't 10% unemployment. This, this is no crops, no food, no water. People die. This is, this is serious, serious stuff. And when you've got nothing, and now even the people who had something have less of something, everybody's clamoring for that one bit of food that may happen to remain during the famine. Uh, this is very, very lean time. So this younger son finds himself in a foreign country uh, with nothing. And all the friends that he had are gone. Because he obviously can't pay them to laugh at his jokes. So he is stranded. Put yourself in the room again. Maybe this is a place where you found yourself. As the listener. Maybe this is a place where you found yourself now. This could be the first point at which this story starts hitting home. Starts getting under your skin a little bit. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to work in the fields with the pigs. Now, how many people are familiar with kosher law? Good. Everybody knows kosher law inside out. Pigs are vile creatures to a a Jewish person who's observing kosher law. They are about the most repugnant creatures you can find. In fact, there are other stories about Jesus where he actually takes demons from a dude and casts them into pigs because that's what pigs are good for. You know, it's, it's, it's not the Pulp Fiction thing about, you know, what, you don't, don't dig on swine? What, are you Jewish? You know, the, pigs are really repugnant creatures. So... So to be sent into the fields during a famine in the Middle East, hot, not a lot of water, working with pigs. This is not the place for a former upper middle class Jewish guy. So it's not that you don't have anything anymore. You don't have anything and you're now working in a repugnant field to hopefully, possibly make a little bit of money that day. Maybe. And again, in this culture, this isn't like working, uh, you know, a, a farm that's monitored by the FDA, you know, where there are all sorts of codes and you wear the gloves and, you know, the pigs are all very orderly. This is like shepherding sheep. You know, you are with the pigs. You are living with the pigs. I, exactly. You, you are living, you are living with the pigs. Um, so again, put yourself in that room. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of those people who has crashed and burned and are now in a place where all you can do is hire yourself out. The best you can do is maybe get something to put a little bit of food on your table that night. And then tomorrow you've got to go back and do it again. And maybe you actually have to do something that's that repugnant. This is the situation that this kid winds up in. 
He's told his father, go die. I'm taking your stuff. He's blown it again on fast chariots and fast women. And now, in the midst of this famine, he is working in the fields with pigs. And the best thing that he can think of is, I could just eat the stuff that's, that the pigs are feeding. I could eat that. I don't have anything else, apparently. So I could, I could eat the pig stuff, which is usually a mixture of manure and other not wonderful things. Um, and probably would result in him being fired, and then he would have nothing again. But this is, this is like the best thing he can do. Because, as the, as the rest of verse 16 says, no one was willing to give this guy anything to eat. No one would give him anything. So let's move, let's move past that, and let's, let's move on to verse 17. Uh, it says, when he came to his census, to his senses, Jesus says, um, the younger son says, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare, but here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he started back towards his father. So here we see that the son has realized the state that he's in. And this is, the, this is the point where I think this story starts, starts really impacting the audience. And I think can start transcending the time and start impacting us as well. Because I think at this point, what Jesus is trying to, trying to point out is this is our state. This is the situation as the audience that we are finding ourselves in. We may not, it's, it's much harder for us to recognize it today because most of us in this room are not the dregs of society. We are not marginalized. We are not um, the, the stain and the filth it is not apparent. That doesn't mean that it isn't there. It just means it's much harder to see. For the people in the room, they are the unclean. And they can look at themselves and the people around them and say... This is us. And they see, when, he, when this younger son came to his senses, he thinks about home, and he thinks about what it was like before, when he was with the father, who was willing, obviously, to be so gracious enough to dismantle his estate and give his son this, and lower his own status. This dad must have been something special. He remembers what it was like and the way his father treated the hired hands. The hired hands are day laborers. See, in the, in the Jewish estate, you had, you had servants, household servants, who were kind of like Alice or Mr. Belvedere. You know, they, li- they lived there. They were practically part of the family, you know, and they, they lived in the basement, and they came up and in the robe, and they said something pithy and waved the wand and then left. And that was the end of the scene. You know, that's kind of what they do. Hired hands... They're day laborers. You would, you would send possibly the household servants into town to the marketplace or to the center of town and there would be people lined up who didn't have employment and needed employment 
and you would hire them for a day. And usually you'd pay them a day's wage, and that would be it. Um, But apparently, the father, the the father in the story, not only paid them a day's wage, but he would also feed them. Probably at the family table. And, And feed them more than they could eat. I can just, I can imagine this father inviting everybody in the middle of the day and feeding everybody until their bellies were full and then calling one of the household servants to grab the Tupperware. We're going to box everything up and, you know, here's food for tomorrow. Take that home too. This is the kind of dad we're dealing with. It's the kind of estate owner that we're dealing with. Someone who is ridiculously generous. And the son is remembering this and he's remembering living in that environment and now looking around and seeing himself in this environment. I'm covered in pig filth. I really want to arm wrestle this pig so I can eat his food. I'm a Jewish guy, squandered everything I have, and now I'm working with pigs in a famine. This is a horrible place for me to be. I would be better off going home, going to the marketplace, and seeing if my dad would hire me to work for a day. Because at least at that point, I'd probably get a meal. I may get a day's wage, which would be okay, but I'd also get food, and that would be good. So the son works up the gumption to head back home. And being in that room, you're going to have a group of people who, who once called this guy, ah, oh, the aristocrat, wow, how oh, the mighty have fallen. And they're thinking, the son's going to go home, and this is going to be hysterical going to walk up to his dad and give this speech and dad's just going to laugh and send him away just what he deserves and then there are probably others in the room who are whose heart is breaking for this kid when i read this that's kind of that's where i fall because i remember times where i specifically tried to do things on my own where i tried to build my life the way i thought my life should be in my opinion, I'm the son of a dentist and, and a teacher with almost doctoral level education. I should have a middle class life, good middle class life with a house, some good land, picket fence, a wife, a couple cars, a dog. You know, that's what I should have. And the first year and a half out of college, that's exactly what I did. I worked hardcore for that. That's what I wanted. And that's where I I was certain that's exactly where I should be. And literally three months after building the house, it all crumbled. And between July of that year and September of that year, I went from having a house with almost a picket fence. Eh. Had grass. I did that all myself. Um, a, A brand new house on three quarters of an acre of land. We had a dog. I had a wife. And in two months, it was gone, all of it. This was the situation I found myself in, where I was sleeping in the back of my own car. So when I read this, I can identify with this kid. And I think there are moments in each of our lives where we, where we look at it, and we, we tried to muscle this thing through and wound up falling flat on our face. We took what we had and we squandered it. We were given much, as we heard last week, but we didn't 
we didn't ante up to what was required. And that's where this kid winds up. And many in the audience are going to hear that. And they're going to resonate with it. So the son goes home. And while he's a long way off, the story says. While he's a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. Not rage, not frustration, not anger. Compassion for the younger son. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father sees his son off in the distance. That tells us two things. First of all, his father was looking. His father was out, if nothing more, checking on stuff over here and occasionally glancing out on the horizon. Okay, I don't see anybody. Check over here. Everybody's going well. Look again. He's constantly looking hoping that his son will return. So we, we see the picture that Jesus is painting for us first of God, the Father, as a God who is already looking for us. Before we even head back, before we even recognize what we've done, he's looking for us. The other thing that we see is that the Father recognizes the Son from a long distance away. Which implies that, that he knows his son well enough to be able to see him and know it's him without any facial recognition, without even really being able to see, like, the, you know, is he 5'2", is he 6'8"? He can't really tell. He's way over there. He's a little dot. But there's enough. The father knows him well enough that he can pick him out. He can pick you out. Far off in the distance, maybe just by the gate, by the way you walk, or the way you kind of dangle your arms by your sides, or, you know, that your head's always cocked to the left, you know, he, he can pick you out, he knows you, and he's been waiting and watching for you actively. And when the son returns, his father starts running towards him. While he's still far off, this old landowner decides to start running. He's so full of joy that the son is returning that he's not, he's not waiting. He's not sitting. He's not, oh, he'll get here eventually. He just reacts. Boom. He's, he's running full gate towards this kid. And imagine the father running towards the kid, throwing his arms around, the, probably almost tackling the guy, and just kissing the freckles off the guy's cheeks. He is so full of compassion and love for this kid that he first runs, but secondly, wraps his arms around his pig-filth-laden body. His dirty, scabby, crusty, I've been baking in the famine-scorched Middle Eastern sun while I'm tending pigs. 
the father wraps his arms around this kid and starts kissing him. At this point, I can imagine the people in the room kind of like, eyes a little weird. Seriously? That this guy could be the most unclean person, you know, maybe, maybe far too unclean, could be the most unclean person I've ever heard of. And this aristocrat, estate older, is going to wrap himself around this kid and start kissing him. That filth is going to be on his mouth. It's going to be in his teeth. He's probably so happy he's teary. Mix that with the dirt. I mean, this is gross. But the dude, and not, not only gross, it is unholy to a Jewish person. But this is the way the father is. And the father said, the, the son, you know, a, after this big hug, the son probably, remember, haven't eaten, covered in pig crap, you know, just bad place. Steps back. And he's been, it's a long walk. He's been practicing this speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, there was more to that speech. But it's not written down. I th- uh, it's not written down here. It says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son, this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. The father wasn't willing to listen to the rest of the speech. He just cuts him right off. He doesn't even care. Does not even care to hear the rest of this. Why don't you make me one of your hired hands? So I doesn't care. He's just thrilled that the son is home. Obviously doesn't care that he's covered in pig filth. He's already wrapped his own body around it. He's already kissed it. He tells his servant, grab the best robe. The best robe is his. The best robe is the one that he wears to formal occasions. This is grab my three-piece Armani suit. Complete with the hat and the cufflinks. Grab it all. And they put that around this kid. The father being willing to cover up his own son's stench and disobedience and arrogance and all those statements about, I wish you were dead so I can have your stuff. Doesn't care. Just covers the son with his, with his own robe. Now that robe. The father's robe. Covered on the inside with his filth. But on the outside. Is the father. Puts the ring on his finger. The ring. The ring is not like a wedding ring. It's not the one ring to rule them all. It's, the, it's that old school signet ring. You know, you, you, uh, you sign something if, if you're the wax, press the family seal in it. It's kind of, it's, it, it's, a, it's a credit card. It's a bank account. It's, it's the father's authority. 
So not only does he cover the son in his own robe, his own clothes, he then gives the son his authority. He doesn't turn him away. He covers him and gives him his name again. And then he puts sandals on his feet because only, only the unclean walk around without sandals. And not my son. Not this kid. This kid's my son. Put some sandals on that guy's feet. Let's go find the fattened calf. Kill it. The best meat in all the, town, in, in all the family. Fattened calf. We're going to throw the biggest party you've ever seen. The people in the room hearing this story... Remember, they're the son. And this is the way the father, according to Jesus, looks at them. This is the way the father acts with them. This is what happens when all you do is head home. You're still a long way off and the father comes out to meet you. You're still covered in pig filth and the father doesn't even care. I can see the father walking the kid back into town and everybody's starting to gather and the barbecue and the, the spit and, you know, the water's flowing like beer and the beer flowing like water and, you know, the big party happening and all the neighborhoods there and they all see this was the kid who walked away. This is the kid who took all your stuff. But the father says, no, this is my son who was lost and now is found again. He was dead and now he's alive. Most importantly, when the father refers to him, he refers to him as my son. Not as this kid. Not as my son who did this. Not as my son the lawyer, my son the doctor, my son the, the pastor, my son the musician. It's just my son. The value ascribed to the kid is that he's mine. My son. And at this point, I would argue that not a dry, there's not a dry eye in that room. Because everyone in that room knows this is me. And what Jesus is saying is I don't need to be clean. Because I can't get unclean on my own power. All I need to do is be available to turn to head in that direction, and God will meet me there. He won't wait. He'll run. And he won't be pissed at me. He's going to throw his righteousness around me. He's going to give me his name, his authority. And at that point, not at the point where we go back, take a shower, and look good, but at that point is the point at which we're going to start partying. And the other two parables there talks about the angels in the heavens rejoicing at the moment that the, that the lady found her coin, at the moment the sheep was found. Not when they reassemble the, the jewelry that the coin was on, not when they get the sheep back to the herd, right then. And for some of us, we've experienced that. There are some of us who have found that in our worst places, 
It's just a mere turn. And God sees us in the distance. And some of us are in our worst places. We don't have to, we don't have to be unclean to know deep down that we are. We don't have to be the dregs of society to know that this kid really is us. And what Jesus is trying to say here, the whole thing, is that the God that we come here to worship, the God that is represented entirely in Jesus, is the God who absolutely does not care that you are covered in pig crap. And the power of this story to divine that out to its audience is what we're working with here. If I had just said at the beginning, God loves you, he doesn't care what you look like, would not carry the same power. If Jesus just said, God loves you, don't care if you're dirty, wouldn't carry the same power. But walking through the story with this kid, we now understand that it doesn't matter what we look like, it doesn't matter what we smell like, doesn't matter anything that we've done. God is actively looking for us. And God will take care of that mess and bring us home. Amen? It's in that light that we approach the communion table. We can approach this table regardless of how dirty and filthy we are, regardless of whether we are far off or whether we're already at the party. It doesn't matter. This table is open for anyone who would say, who, who, would, who would turn and head home, who would recognize their state and say, it was better then. If you're in that place, then this table is for you. If you're in a place where you don't feel ready to, make, to, to head home, if, if you're in a place where you don't feel, you don't feel worthy of that, um, I've asked Heidi to, to be available up here. Heidi's a valued member of our leadership team. And if you'd like somebody to pray with, Heidi and I will be over here, and we'd be happy to, to continue to engage the story with you through communion and through the rest of service. But we're going to take communion together as a congregation. And I want you to, as you approach the table, remember... Remember that you are unclean. Remember that you are in that place. And remember that God invites you and he doesn't care. He absolutely doesn't care because he loves you in a ridiculous kind of way. The communion table is open. Please approach it as you want. Don't feel like you need to gang up on it. The band's going to come up and play a nice soundtrack for us. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.